Hi, welcome to Bread. Over the next two weeks, we're giving special attention to the stories of Jesus in the week leading up to his death and resurrection. We believe this moment changed the course of human history for all time. God continues in this personal and global trajectory-changing work by his Spirit. Take a listen. Hey everybody, welcome. I'm Nellie. Great to see your beautiful faces once again. Um, so happy Palm Sunday. Happy Triumphal Entry Sunday. I wish we had, um, you know, some very large palm branches to sort of wave spectacularly, um, but we don't. Um, however, also I do not have a um, smoke machine. How about Ben and his sermon last week? Can you give it up for Ben? He's not here, but he'll hear this later maybe. Give it up for Ben. Come on. He had so many great visuals. Smoke Machine was rocking. So today we're going to talk about the triumphal entry. And as I was thinking about this uh, pretty famous parade, basically, as Jesus came into Jerusalem, I was thinking about parades in my own life. And some of you who may be new to L.A. or maybe haven't been around for a thousand years like I have, have you ever been to the Rose Bowl before New Year's to see how people camp out with their chairs by the side of the road to, like, get their spot? Has anyone seen this? They do it for, like, over a month. Raise your hand if you've seen this. It's pretty incredible, just for the Rose Parade on that morning. Well, I come from a very small town in Maryland, as well as... Uh, New York, but I grew up most of my growing up years in Maryland, a town of like 9,000, a little called, little town called La Plata. And La Plata has this tradition of doing this parade bed race, which I'm going to put up on the screen just to get to know me a little bit more. This is one of the strange things we do in rural America. It is a bed race where people race down Main Street to compete to see who can race their beds down the street the fastest. And everyone's on the side of the road cheering. This is La Plata Town Hall. Anyhow, just a, just a tiny little thing about me. Get to know me better. I've never actually been on, the, on a bed in, in, in the bed race, but I kind of wish I did. Um, I wonder, do you guys have any Palm Sunday traditions growing up? Like any? Raise your hand if you did. I'm very, like, hand-raisy this morning. I'm not sure why. All right, great. One of my friends during COVID, they have some kids, four kids, they instituted this new tradition, which I'd encourage all of you all to do. They, on Palm Sunday, read through the story of the narrative that we'll do today, and then they do this really cool thing. They have their kids hold out their palms, and they make Sundays in their hands. (laughs) It's incredible. I'm going there this afternoon uh, to do the same thing. Okay, so we're going to talk about Palm Sunday today, and I may weave in and out. My apologies if it feels like my brain is not connected to my mouth. I am working on not a lot of sleep. As it turns out, you should not drink espresso at night. I, I feel like I should be able to do this because I'm Sicilian, but I overdid it last night, and I was up all night, as it turns out. So we're going to take a quick stroll through some art. We're going to do some more art history with Nellie D. Are you ready for it? 
I'm ready for it. So we're going to take a look at some scenes of the triumphal entry. Here's the first one. This is a 14th century painting of unknown origin, except we do know they were Germans, or we think so. So what is going on here? So we've got Jesus on the donkey. We've got people who are apparently very happy that Jesus is coming to town. They look thrilled. 14th century Germans really knew how to party. They've got some pretty rockin' beards. Jesus is like, what's up? I'm here. There's this creeper in the tree. There's always, in ancient art, or Renaissance art, there's always, like, people creeping in the paintings. Creeper, I think this is supposed to be Zacchaeus. Different story, different town, somehow makes it into the painting. The second painting we have is um, Pietro di Giovanni d'Ambrogio, the entry into Jerusalem. This is also 1400s. Okay, this is a little bit more detailed, but I hope you can see it. I know you guys are sitting really far back. But, again, dudes falling out of the tree to try to see Jesus, probably Zacchaeus. We've got uh, some women kind of in the back where there's an arch. You can't really see it, but they are very threateningly throwing these palms towards Jesus, supposedly waving them. If you look close up, it's actually a little frightening, the look on their faces. Then you have all these folks who are sort of muttering to the side, supposedly excited that he's coming into town, and then folks throwing their cloaks. Okay, we're going to go to one more slide. This is Pedro de Orente. This is in the 1600s. Okay. This one is quite beautiful, but also interesting to me. So you've got people throwing their cloaks in front of Jesus as he's coming in. What else do we have? Jesus is really covered up, even though everyone else seems to be extremely hot. This prominently showing off their abs and their back muscles. This is like the origins of a thirst trap. I don't know what's going on here. Jesus looks tiny in this picture. You don't even see him. You see the other guys sort of like waving their palm branches or whatever they're doing. And Jesus is on this diminutive little donkey, sort of looking pathetic but important. Okay, and for our last art piece, this is actually one I'm not going to make fun of. I think this is actually quite incredible. This is a more modern piece um, by an Indian man named Jyoti Sahi, and it's called The Entry into Jerusalem. It's from 2012, and I think it really captures both the complexity and the cacophony of the moment, and apparently when he made this, he said it was meant to, depic meant to depict the idea of Jesus entering the human heart, what that looks like. So this is in a, a chapel in Sicily connection to me. Okay, you can leave that up if you'd like. So let's dive into this story, shall we? So the triumphal entry, the story of Jesus entering Jerusalem is in all four Gospels. Um, and I'm mostly going to be sharing from Matthew. Um, I'm just going to paraphrase this for you because there's some other elements of the story that I'd really like to highlight. But essentially in Matthew 21, what happens is Jesus is approaching 
um, a, a town called Bethphage, and it's about a mile from Jerusalem, kind of like from here. If bread was Jerusalem, it's sort of like the, what's it called, the Ferndale, Ferndale Griffith Park hike. Has anybody ever done that? Okay, great. It's about a mile away. You can kind of see it, but you're not there yet. And he says to his disciples, um, go into that village and grab a donkey for me, or a colt, colt or a donkey. And he basically says, they're going to give you the donkey. Don't worry. Just tell them the Lord needs it. And <clears throat> they bring back the donkey. This happens. Apparently, the owner of the donkey was like, okay. And they bring the donkey, and Jesus starts to get on the donkey and head into Jerusalem, and they put their clothes on top of it as a way to honor him. And as they start making their way into Jerusalem, um, a large crowd starts spreading around the, the roadway. Imagine this on um, uh, Los Feliz Boulevard, right? Tons of people pushing up, wishing they had put their chairs out a month before to get their right spot. And they're making a lot of noise. There's, um, it, it's a situation where they're singing old songs to Jesus. And it says that in, in Matthew 28, the crowds went ahead of them and followed him. So they're, they're both by the road and they're following him and they're shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And to be fair, they, they were probably singing this. This is probably like an old song that they're singing from four, five, six hundred years past, because we know this. It comes from places in the Old Testament that this was repeated over and over again. So there's a lot of volume. There's, there's a lot of noise. There's a lot of celebration of Jesus, who they're expecting is their coming Messiah. And in Luke's version, I'm just going to give you a tiny bit from there. Luke talks about how when they come near to the place, the Mount of Olives, and the crowd of disciples start showing up, they're joyfully praising God. So in Luke's version, he's reminding us, this wasn't just like, hey, Jesus, we're glad you're here. It was like a joyful melody. There's lots of things coming out of their heart. Like they're happy. They're really happy that he's there because of all the miracles they'd seen. Because Jesus had been doing some things. And they say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Kind of sounds like what the angels said when they were on their way when Jesus was first born. But it says some of the teachers of the law, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus as this was happening, rebuke your disciples, teacher. Like, quiet them down. They must have been embarrassed. Or they must have maybe felt the threat of the Roman Empire saying, there's only one king, there's only one emperor, and maybe they felt in danger. Or maybe they're offended and felt he was blaspheming. In any case, they're like, shh, tell them to quiet down. And everyone's screaming, I, I wish I had 
I wish I had like a band behind me to try to portray how loud this was. And Jesus says, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. If they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. And he was quoting a verse from uh, the prophets that essentially talked about how all of creation is groaning and will cry out if we do not. So that even the stones need to recognize that Jesus is Lord. Okay, let's slow down a sec. There's a lot going on in this scene. So the king has arrived. Jesus has entered the space. He's on his way to Jerusalem, which is the holy city, which is the space where the temple is, which is where all the stuff is happening. Is happening. And he's already told his disciples prior to this, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. They are going to, they're going to kill me, and it's going to be brutal. But they haven't quite heard him, right? They don't want to hear him. And apart from the religious elites, the Pharisees and the chief priests, the ordinary people, the nobodies, the crowd, pretty much everyone is cheering for him. But they're expecting something quite different than what had actually arrived. They're expecting a Messiah who would be a conquering military king. They're expecting, after hundreds of years of songs that they sang to God, of hopes, of waiting, that finally this would be the moment when they wouldn't be oppressed anymore, that they wouldn't have to live under the thumb of another brutal empire. And so they expected that their Messiah, their king, would come with swords, would come with might, would come to conquer. And so I'm sure they were a little confused when he comes in riding on this little donkey that was probably very farty. I mean, last time I rode on a small horse type thing, it literally farted for an hour. And I don't know what it ate. I was like, what, why did I get the farting horse? It's unfortunate because we, we were moving and you just smelled it as you were going through. He, this is what Jesus, the king of the world, chooses to sit on as he's going in for his triumph victory lap. And I wonder how... I wonder, oh, I'm skipping, I've skipped a page. Stand by. Aha. Oh, yes. Forgive me. So let's talk about this word, Hosanna. Hosanna in the highest. This is one of those weird words that we still say in English that actually isn't even Hebrew. Um, it's a, a loan word that's come to us through Greek where they were trying to make sense of what the Hebrew said. Don't worry about any of that. Basically, what this word means, the way they were constructing it, coming from a Hebrew word meaning to save, is a desperate plea. Hosanna was not just like a sweet praise song word. Hosanna was a word that was coming from a place of absolute, really, fear and desperation. In the Hebrew, it means something like, Help me now, save, save us, please. 
I picked up this um, newspaper that was just sitting on my coffee table, and it says, dire message from Mariupol, help, SOS, we're in trouble. And I paused to say, you know, this, this sort of... This sort of message is, is weird to give from a place where we have prosperity, affluence, and no threat of war. But it really caught me off guard even when I saw this headline from Ukraine. Because help, SOS, we're in trouble. That is what Hosanna means, essentially. That's the, that's the groan behind the word. So as they're saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the king, they're desperate to be brought into what they understand to be liberation, okay? It's a song they had sung in the temple for hundreds of years, expecting the Messiah. So you can't really blame, you can't blame God's people for expecting something different than who arrived, right? I would be expecting a military victor as well. But that's not who arrives. You get Jesus on this tiny donkey coming in essentially saying, I am the servant of all, and I'm going to lay down my life for this city and for the world. And you may not understand it now, but one day you will. This story is a paradox, guys. It's, um, it isn't all just bells and, and happy songs. It's a paradox, and there's a lot of pain within it. Undeniably, this is the week of Easter, and we're looking towards Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday as a triumph, of course, for our faith. But in the midst of that story is this humble servant, Jesus, who embodies sacrificial love and really sort of does this stunt with the donkey, if you ask me. I'll come back to that in a second. But I think deep below this story, there's also this undercurrent of disappointment for God's people because they were expecting something different. They were expecting someone who would liberate them as a war machine. What do we do when God disappoints us? What do we do? How do we handle that? I feel like in the American expression of church, we don't talk about this enough, so I probably talk about it too much. But I think in our faith and in our walk with God, Having a space where we expect to have to walk with disappointment is a very healthy thing. Let me tell you a quick story. So it has to do with disappointment. I was 22, I just graduated university, and the only thing I could think about doing, the only thing I cared about, was figuring out how to move to Italy and do something there. And I had it all mapped out for four or five years I had been a volunteer with this ministry called Young Life, and I was going to go be a Young Life intern in Italy. And I had been talking to this Young Life recruiter, 
and I was going to go to Milano. It was going to be incredible. My whole life was out in front of me. And then I got this call, a handful of months in of preparing, and someone else called and basically said, that recruiter really didn't know what he was talking about. We don't have a team to send you to there. You can't go to Italy. I'm sorry. And they said, would you consider going to a place like Portugal? And I went, well, let me think about it, pray about it. And then I, I said, yes. I said, it sounds fairly close to Italy, right? So I went to Italy. I mean, I went to Portugal wishing I was in Italy, disappointed by the food. But Portugal is very lovely. It's a wonderful place to go visit and to live. And I was there for three and a half years. And towards the end of that time, I got recruited by another organization to help plant a church in Florence. I was out of my mind happy, right? I go to visit. It's the super artsy community of Italians and expats, and they're going to have me help with worship. And I was doing a lot of worship leading in those days, and it was a dream, like truly a dream. And I'm preparing. I'm starting to, you know, figure out how the support is going to, is going to work out money-wise and how I'm going to live. And then I get this call that all of the visas from everyone on the team who had already been there ahead of me had been denied by the Italian government because they thought it was a Protestant cult or something. And they basically had to leave the country. They had to leave quite quickly. So I ended up in America. <laughs> I never went to Italy. I ended up back in the US going to Fuller and trying to figure out what God had for my life. That was 15 years ago, guys. And I'm still working through the layers of that disappointment. But what I'll tell you is this. God has walked with me through that disappointment to reshape my desires into new things. And while there's a part of me that still really would love to settle down in Italy, be there long term, maybe it, it might not be until I'm, I don't know, 70. I'm okay with that. Because I've learned with the Lord to sort of welcome disappointment as a, almost like a friend, but not like a, a very close friend, you know, someone that I have to keep around and know what to do with. He's made everything beautiful in his time. He set eternity in the hearts of humans, yet no one can fathom what God's done from beginning to end. It's from Ecclesiastes. Sometimes I wonder how Jesus handled disappointment. When I think about it, even like the donkey that he chose to ride in on, I don't think he chose to ride in on that donkey just to fulfill scripture in the Old Testament. I think he was making a very special point with that donkey. And the more I think about it, I think that donkey may even represent the disappointment that he had with what he was given at that moment. What do I mean by that? So he rides into the city, and in Luke's gospel, we find out as he's approaching Jerusalem, he starts weeping over the city in the midst of what's supposed to be his triumph victory parade. He starts weeping over the city, and it says he was weeping because they didn't understand the way peace would be brought to the city. There was much that they did not understand about who he was and what he came to do. 
And so we don't, we don't talk about Jesus and his humanity all that much. He's fully God and fully man. But I love thinking about the fact that Jesus had to walk with disappointment in the same way that we did. Think about how he was in the Garden of Gethsemane and he begged his father, take this cup from me. But not your will, not my will, let your will be done. Guys, the father didn't take the cup away. He went to the cross and he suffered. For me, he's a picture of perseverance in a time when it's much easier to give up it would, be, it would have been much easier for him to just throw in the towel. Let me return to the story now for a second. This is for all my storytellers in the room. I know who some of you are. People who really love storytelling. I am honestly blown away by particularly Matthew's version of the story, but if you weave all four Gospels together, it's kind of a literary masterpiece if you start to look at how um, Jesus is portrayed at, on the way to the cross. What do I mean by this? Okay, so Jesus is riding into the city. He's riding in on the donkey. It's like Jesus decides to make a parody out of the whole war machine, military complex of Rome, and of what God's people expected. It's like he intentionally decides to flip everything on its head, to do the complete opposite of what they were wanting. He rides in on a donkey. So the triumphal entry that we celebrate today, as I've mentioned, it's, it's really meant to welcome us not just to Jesus as the king of his kingdom, which we talk about all the time at Bread, but to welcome us into the paradox of the kingdom. Meaning, in this kingdom where Jesus reigns and we celebrate him in this Easter week, we also recognize that that kingdom is both now and not yet. Because we're living in the tension of the now when we still are dealing with horrific war, suffering in our own lives, inflation that's threatening some folks' housing. It's rough. But this is a day that we're welcomed, not just into the paradox of the pain that Jesus suffered, but into the victory of the resurrection. So I am going to point out one or two other things that I think are really interesting about this story. Um, maybe you've noticed this, maybe you haven't. Um, I want to just pause and talk about the bookends of the triumphal, triumphal entry. What do I mean by bookends? I mean, what is the story, what happens right before it, and what happens right after it? Because the more I think about this, the more I am really blown away with, like, the genius of the storytelling here. So in Matthew, what sets up Jesus and his ride into Jerusalem? What sets it up? The thing that happens right before Jesus riding into Jerusalem on the farting donkey is the scene where Jesus is walking down the road 
and there's two blind men who cannot see they are blind, and they are the ones who recognize Jesus for who he is. The blind men recognize him, and they cry out, save us, son of David, save us, son of David. And just in calling him son of David, they're saying he is the Messiah. He's the chosen one. He's the one we've longed for. And Jesus says, what do you want? They say, we want our sight. And he says, come to me. And in his compassion, he touches them, and they're healed. Immediately after this, Jesus starts riding into Jerusalem in this story. Then, following his entry into the city, Where's the first place he goes? He goes into the temple, y'all. He goes into the temple, cleans house. He throws the money changers out. He says, you've made this a den of robbers and a nasty flea market, and it's supposed to be a house of prayer of all nations. This is my father's house, and I'm fixing it. So he starts the process symbolically of cleaning the temple out. And as he's cleaning the temple out, which was the place to meet with God at that moment, he's welcoming people in that never had a chance to come to the temple. No chance. So who are the folks who flood in? The blind, the lame, the paralyzed, and one other group of people. This is really beautiful to me the folks who have no, no social standing at all. This is scandalous to the teachers of the law. Back from a corner in, in the temple after Jesus cleanses the area and drives out the people making money off of God's presence, you hear some kids singing, probably sloppily, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. You hear the kids singing. And this is like the last straw. This is what sets off the religious elite at the moment. They come in. They hear these kids. Kids were not allowed in the temple. Kids in the Roman Empire had like negative social standing. In some ways in our culture, this hasn't changed. These kids were dismissed, right? And once Jesus cleanses the temple and it starts to make way for a new kingdom, these kids start singing and the, and the priests and the teachers of the law say, Jesus, do you hear what these kids are singing? This is from Matthew 21. Do you hear what they're singing, Jesus? Because they were saying, he's the chosen one. He's the one who's going to save us. And he says, yes, yes, I hear him, I hear him. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise? So he's quoting an ancient text that they should have known that talks about God delivering them from their enemies through the praise of kids and babies. None of this makes sense to the rational mind, right? This was the scandal, that his praises were in the lips of the kids. 
So as I start to wrap this up, there will come a time, guys, where like the religious elites, the box that we've put God in will be broken. There will come a time where we actually have to make space. We have to, in our hearts, say, clear the temple out, Lord. Clear this thing out. I'm ready for you to do a new thing. And if we're listening to the Holy Spirit and we're really saying, come Holy Spirit, do a new thing. The ones that we've dismissed along the way, they could be the very ones teaching us something about who God is. Two quick examples of who those people might be. The first is pretty simple. I think we're all guilty of this in some way. Who are the types of people we dismiss in 2022? People who disagree with us. Be it politically, socially, religiously, you name it. We've become so divided. We've become so, our idol is now in 2022 being right. It's the thing that matters most. And some of those people that we disagree with, that we've dismissed because they, we've just determined that they're morons, they're going to be the ones teaching us something new about God if we will listen. I was thinking about how, um, you know, just how divided we are in this world today. And the stuff we're divided over, some of it is very serious and some of it is not. And it's like we have created these walls that Jesus said he came to, to demolish. And I ran into this picture of, of the Berlin Wall coming down. Daniel, if you don't mind putting this up. This is an incredible picture. This is what Jesus came to do. This is why he rode in on that donkey. He came to bring the walls down between us and between us and God. Prince of Peace and the Lord of Lords. Thanks, Daniel. You can take that down. So the second group of people that I think could teach us something about God that we've maybe dismissed is children. Now, we live in a city that valorizes adulthood and the dreams that adults can live out. Creative dreams, innovative dreams. Look, I love that about LA. That's why I'm here, that and the food. But I have noticed after living here for 15 years that children are not valued in the same way they are in other parts of the world, even in other parts of the country. And this is a part of our culture that we have to be very careful about. So what I would propose to you, in the same way that the chief priests and the religious elites were sent over the edge by the children proclaiming that Jesus was Lord, that we have something to learn from the kids around us. If you don't have kids around you, that's totally fine. Find them. 
I promise you there's a family dying to have you come and just hang out with their kids for an hour and play with them. I have been completely changed by the kids in my life. And I've made it a, it's a spiritual practice for me to spend time with them because I learn something from them every time I'm with them. Mostly they teach me how to take myself less seriously. And this is something that is a gift from God. Jesus said, if you don't enter the kingdom like a child, you won't enter it. Do we really believe that? The children recognized him because he embodied hope and love, and he was fun to be around. I, without a doubt, think Jesus was the most fun person in the room virtually every time because he was full of joy. Have you ever been around like a truly joyful person? It's intoxicating to be around them. And kids can recognize that a mile away. All right, I'm going to tie this up.